What a glorious time we've had enjoying the gospel together. And the topic I had planned for tonight is a, a great topic. It is uh, our last in the uh, introductory series of the Millennium series, just to uh, look at some theological issues, particularly the area of dualism. And that's an important topic, but it's not as important as what we've witnessed tonight. And so, with your permission, I'm going to abandon that plan just for a bit and have you turn with me to Matthew chapter 28. Matthew chapter 28. While you're finding that, I'll pray for us and we'll spend a few moments in the Word together. Our Father, we come to you this evening, as Darren has already said, with our hearts filled to overflowing with what you have done through the lives of these seven that we have, whose testimonies we have heard this evening. Every story completely different, and yet the theme through all of them is the fact that you pursue sinners, and you bring to faith in Christ those that you have chosen. Lord, I pray that those hearing these testimonies would be moved to remember their own stories, And those hearing who do not yet know Christ would sense the pursuit of God behind them and would surrender and come to faith as the Spirit of God calls and regenerates. Lord, we thank you for the clarity, the obviousness of the gospel all throughout Scripture. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation. It is through the gospel that we are saved. And the word of Christ is that which leads us to the truth. And so we would ask you in these moments, Lord, to bless our thoughts of the gospel of Jesus Christ and be reminded that all glory goes to God and none to us. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. I just want to ask one question. I'm going to read a familiar text. I'm going to ask one question, then we'll take a few minutes to answer it. And the question is, why do we say, when the the, the pastor is in the waters of baptism, why do we say, I baptize you in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit? Uh, The short answer is, because that's what Jesus said to say. But there's a longer answer than that. But let's find out the the foundation to that. Matthew 28, the very end of the chapter, verse 16. This is after the resurrection of Christ. The Lord Jesus had left instructions that His disciples were to meet Him in Galilee in the northern province. Verse 16, But the eleven disciples proceeded to Galilee to the mountain which Jesus had designated. And I'll just stop right there for a minute. The Apostle Paul told the Corinthians that Jesus appeared to more than 500 at once after his resurrection. This is the best best guess as to when this actually happened. That there were many hundreds here. Verse 17, and when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying... All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. And I'll stop right there for a second. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. 
this is not necessarily just the 11 who were left. You remember that Judas is gone now. He's rejected Christ. He's rebelled and he's gone. He's out of the picture. But if the hundreds are there, the, the doubt is not that Jesus is Lord. The doubt is not that Jesus is all the things that he said he's, that he is. The doubt is not even that he's been raised from the dead. The, the doubt is, is this actually him? And other gospels would confirm that there was a, a process of walking up this mountain. And so, of course, it, it, like anything else, from a distance, you see this person who others around are saying, I think that's Jesus. And as they get closer, that doubt becomes uh, uh, taken away. And Jesus came up. And now he confirms, this is me. I am the Lord Jesus. I am raised from the dead. And he makes this statement we often call the Great Commission. All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to keep all that I commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. This glorious commission to those who believe given to 500 plus is what we still take today as the mission of the church. And in fact, this little statement is, is packed with ecclesiology. It's packed with the study of the church. The main verb in verse 19 is not go. The main verb is make disciples. That that's what we're to do. Go is, is just a verb that goes along with it that kind of follows after. But we're to make disciples of all the nations. And haven't we heard tonight evidence that the Lord is doing this? To hear testimonies in multiple languages... And so we are to not just make converts. We are to make disciples. There, there isn't a, a difference between the mere convert and the higher level upper echelon disciple. The only disciples are true Christians and only true Christians are disciples. And the church isn't here to just make converts, to just check off numbers, to say that even though 50 people are coming to church, we have 750 on our attendance rolls. We're to make disciples, those who are learners, those who follow after Christ, those who yearn for Christ, those who will die for Christ, those who live for Christ. That is the mission of the church. And those who say, I would be a disciple of Christ are not to do this secretly. They don't do it as a, as a personal, internal, private decision. We've said this before, the Christian faith is very personal, but it is anything but private. Our faith is not private. It is personal in that every individual must come to faith in Christ on his own. As we've heard testimonies tonight, no one can follow the coattails or follow after their parents or their, their siblings and say, I'm a Christian because I'm doing what other Christians are doing. It is personal, but it is not private. Baptizing them. Literally in Greek, immersing them, sinking them under. And then to my question, why do we say in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit? The first easy answer, that's what Jesus said to do. That we baptize in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. But there's a longer answer to this. And to... Understand that answer, I think Ephesians 1 is really our best text. And if you would turn with me to Ephesians 1, I just want to point out some high points. 
If you know Ephesians at all, you know that Ephesians chapter 1 is the most glorious Trinitarian passage in all of our Bible. And not coincidentally, it is focused on salvation. It is focused on the newness of life given to the one that would come to faith in Christ. I'll begin in verse 2, verse 3 rather. This really begins the, the glorious Trinitarian section. The Apostle Paul begins speaking of the Father. And he issues a, a blessing toward the Father. That God the Father deserves all blessing, all glory. And he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, in Christ. That for the Christian, there is no such thing as partly saved. There is no such thing as, is on, as on the path of salvation. There is no such thing as, I have a little bit of salvation. I have a little bit of the Spirit. I have a little bit of the Gospel. There is no such thing as an ill-equipped Christian. That every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ belongs to every believer in Christ. All the glories that you can think of, the glory of the Word of God, the glory of the Spirit of God indwelling us, the glory of the church of Jesus Christ, our brothers and sisters, the glory of prayer, the glory of all the, the hope that we have in heaven, the biblical type of hope, that certain hope, all of these riches, these, these glorious blessings, and we have all of them. At the very moment that you were saved, all of those belong to you, and these were a gift to you from the Father. All from Him and all to you. In verse 4, it tells us what He was going to do for you prior to your salvation. The second half of verse 4, that you would be holy and blameless before Him in love. We spoke about this this morning, that the requirement to appear before God, the requirement to see God, is that you have innocent hands and a pure heart, and no idolatry, and no deceit. That you are perfect before God, that you are holy, that you are perfected. And, and of course, we said this morning that that's hopeless, that's impossible. And yet God has given that we would be holy. He's also given that we would be blameless. I don't know about you, I can't go through a single day without getting blamed for something, and it's correct. It's not, it's not a false accusation. Who left the cottage cheese out all night? That would be me. Who forgot to clean up after this? That would be me. Who left the door open half the night and, we, and our electric bill is going through the roof? That would be me. We all get blamed for things. Can you imagine standing before God and the books being opened and the question being asked, what shall we blame this person for? You. And the answer is nothing. Nothing. You are blameless. You are guilt free. That's given to you by the Father. Not only has He given you to be holy and blameless, look at verse 5. This is almost beyond comprehension. He's given us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to Himself. His adoption of son, as sons. This isn't just that God sent Jesus to save you so that you could be a slave in the kingdom for all time. And we are slaves, scripturally speaking, 125 times in the New Testament. 
But it's not merely that you, would, you could be the, the cleaner of streets in the kingdom of heaven. It's not merely that you would be the lowest of the low in the kingdom of heaven. And we would be happy for that. Better to be the lowest in heaven than to be the highest in hell, it's often been said. But it's not just that you are, are, are given now salvation so that you can be with some sort of sigh of resignation by God. Oh, I guess we'll let him in. I guess we'll let her be a part. You're adopted. Can we, I can't wrap my mind around that. That I have all the rights, all the privileges that the singular Son of God, Jesus, has. And so do you. What a gift from the Father. Verse 6, it says that all these things He has graciously bestowed on us. With grace, He is given. He is bestowed. He is given a, a bequest as it is, as it was. The, a, a, an inheritance through grace. That's the gift of the Father. What has the Son done? At the very end of verse 6, the grace bestowed on us is in the beloved that is in Christ and that in him in Christ we have redemption through his son, through his blood redemption through his blood this is this is a, a mind-blowing concept that you who deserve nothing you who deserve all of the punishment that God could ever give are redeemed you're purchased the wages of sin is death, but what? The free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. The redemption is something that is so precious, so magnificent, that Revelation 4 and Revelation 5 has songs that will go on for eternity that sing of redemption. It's not like this is a topic we talk about on the earth, and when we go to heaven someday, redemption is just sort of this old hat thing we used to talk about in church back in the day. Redemption is so glorious, so amazing, that it will be sung of, it will be gloried in for all eternity. In fact, one of your nicknames as a Christian is you are the redeemed. That's who you are. The very scars on Jesus Christ that he took with him to heaven in a physical body remind us that you are redeemed through his blood, through the sacrifice that he made. And in fact, in the book of Revelation, the, the book that shows him in the, his most glorious light, the name he is called the most is the Lamb of God, the sacrifice. In him we have redemption through his blood. And what did this buy for us? The forgiveness of our transgressions. The forgiveness of our transgressions. What does that mean? There was a moment in time when you were itty-bitty, when you were tiny, and your parents said no. And you said, I'm going to risk it. I'm going to take the chance. You've all seen this with toddlers. A little bitty kid reaches out to something they're not supposed to have, and mom says no. And what do they do? They look, and then they do this. And they keep trying. Now, at that little bitty age... They're not consciously thinking, there is a holy God in heaven and I'm going to rebel against him right now. They're just thinking, I like candy and I've got a 50-50 shot that mom's not going to go haywire if I grab this. But then they get a little bit older. And now, instead of just the sin nature 
causing instinctive rebellion. Now the sin nature causes purposeful rebellion. Intentional rebellion. And these are the moments when the sin nature is proven once again, time after time after time. And from that moment on, you transgressed against the law of God. You did the opposite of what the law of your conscience told you. You might say, well, I never read the Bible. Uh, The book of Romans says it doesn't matter. God placed conscience in you. He placed His law in your heart so that you know right and wrong. That you're born believing that murder is wrong. You're born believing that theft is wrong. You're born believing that, that adultery is wrong. These things are natural to us because of our conscience. And yet you do the opposite. And you begin as a very little one Racking up transgressions in heaven. What Revelation 20 calls the books. Not a singular book, but just the books. It's a metaphorical way of saying that the record of your sin is so great that it takes a library in heaven to deal with it. That you have, as it were, 50 angels that are just writing as fast as they can. Look, did you get that one? He just did that. Yeah, I got that one down. What about this? He, he thought this thought. Yeah, we got that one down. Transgression after transgression after transgression. More than you could possibly count. And so when this says that through Christ you have the forgiveness of our transgressions, that's an astronomical amount of forgiveness. That's that's an eternal amount of forgiveness. But how is Christ able to do this? According to the riches of His grace. And this is an important phrase. According to the riches of His grace doesn't just mean that Christ took out of His riches. It's not the same as, for example, if if you have $100 in your wallet and somebody asks you for 10, that out of your riches you have taken 10. No, according to the riches of your grace is that Christ gave everything He has to you. He took out the full 100 and gave it to you. What did He give? He gave His life. He gave everything. He gave up heaven. He gave up the the glory that He had with His Father. He came down, as Philippians 2 said, to this earth, all the way down to death, even death on the cross, according to the riches of His grace. Put it this way, there's nothing more that God can do for you than Jesus to come and die on your behalf. There's nothing greater He can do. He gave it all. And what was the result of this? Verse 8, He caused to abound to us all wisdom and insight about His grace. That we understand His grace because of the work of Christ. And then we have these just heavenly phrases in verse 10. For an administration of the fullness of the times, that is the summing up of all things in Christ, things in heaven and things on earth in Him. This is a big phrase that basically means, if I could boil it down, that your salvation, the work of Christ on the cross on your behalf is just part of a giant picture, a giant global glorious plan of redemption that you get to be a part of. That the Lord Jesus Christ is preparing for Himself a kingdom that every time He saves someone, every time His blood is applied to the sin of a, of a new believer, that the kingdom grows by one more citizen. And He is administering this coming kingdom for the fullness of the time that there will be a time, the summing up of all things in Christ, when all the kingdom citizens of all time are gathered together to all give glory to the Son. 
In verse 11, in him we also have been made an inheritance. We've been made an inheritance. Did you catch that? It's not just that you have an inheritance. You've been made an inheritance. You belong to Christ. You are a gift to Christ. You are the the gift given to him by the Father for his faithfulness. Hebrews chapter 12 says that, that Jesus endured the cross for the joy set before him. Isaiah 53 says that that Jesus will look with gladness on those that He's earned. And so, you are His inheritance. I don't know about you, but I know myself well enough to know I'm not much of a gift to Christ. But in your glorified state, you will be. Because you'll be an honor to Him. You'll be a trophy for Him to point to of His glorious grace. That's the Son What has the Spirit done? Verse 13 says, In Him you also, after listening to the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in Him with the Holy Spirit of promise. Ephesians 1 doesn't address this, but John chapter 3 does and Titus chapter 3 does. That it was the Spirit who regenerated you. It was the Spirit who caused your spiritual rebirth. It wasn't something you asked for. No preacher said, you need to be born again. And you said, I agree, I shall be born again. No, the Spirit of God births Christians when He chooses to do so. But then after that, you believed. And verse 13 says, you were sealed in Him with the Holy Spirit of of promise who was given as a pledge of our inheritance under the redemption of God's own possession, that the Spirit of God indwelt you, put His stamp on you. You were, as it, as it were, a, a, a down payment, or the Spirit was rather a down payment of what is to come. Why is this so important? Because if you're indwelt by the Spirit and the Spirit of God will never leave you, what does that guarantee? It guarantees your heavenly future. It guarantees your kingdom citizenship. Because if the Spirit of God never leaves you, then you'll never leave God. Now, back to my question. When we baptize, why do we say, I baptize you in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit? Why do we do that? To do anything in the name of someone is to represent them. It is to do something on their behalf. Or in this particular case, to do anything in the name of the Father, to do anything in the name of the Son, to do anything in the name of the Spirit, is to say that the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are actually the most important characters in this drama, not the person being baptized. That all glory is to go to the Father, all glory is to go to the Son, all glory is to go to the Spirit. That's why we say in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And Ephesians 1 says this. Why should all glory go to the Father? Because Ephesians 1, 4 says that He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. Why were these seven in the waters of baptism? Because before He ever created the Garden of Eden, the world, the universe, God chose these seven. That's why glory goes to the Father. And verse 6 confirms this, to the praise of the glory of His grace. Why does glory go to the Son? Verse 8, making known to us, verse 9 rather, making known to us the mystery of His will. 
Whose will was it for you to be saved? Whose will was it for these seven to be saved? This was the will of the Lord Jesus Christ according to His good pleasure. Not one Christian has ever said, according to my good pleasure, I shall get saved. If they think they said that, it's only because it was according to the good pleasure of Christ that they said that in the first place. It was the mysterious will of Jesus Christ that you come to be one of His citizens. According to His good pleasure, And this is confirmed to be for his glory in verse 12 to the end that we who have first hoped in Christ would be to the praise of his glory. The glory of the grace of the Father, the praise of the glory of the Son. You didn't choose the moment of your salvation. You didn't choose the moment that your eyes were opened to the gospel. You didn't choose the moment that you prayed and asked for forgiveness. And you didn't choose the moment that your heart was, was just split in two with conviction over your own sin. You didn't choose the moment that the 2 Corinthians 4 says that, that God opened your eyes to see the glory of God in the face of Christ. You didn't choose that moment. You didn't choose the moment that the Holy Spirit blew in your heart, as it were, to open your deaf ears and to unstop your blind eyes and to open a, a hardened heart. You didn't choose that moment. You didn't ask for it. You, you didn't beg for it. You didn't even think you needed it. In fact, you were probably mad at the idea of anyone telling you you need the gospel. And yet, in a moment that the Holy Spirit alone understands, whew, He blew. Your eyes were opened. Your ears unstopped. Your heart softened to the gospel And on top of that, without you asking, without you begging for this, without you even having a doctrinal understanding of this, the Spirit of God sealed you. He indwelt you. You didn't ask for it. You didn't beg for it. It just happened. And who gets glory for that? Again, at the end of verse 14, to the praise of His glory. God the Father chose us to the glory of His grace. God the Son gave us redemption through His blood according to the mystery of His will by His good pleasure to the praise of His glory. The Spirit of God regenerated you, gave you spiritual birth, sealed you, indwelt you to the praise of His glory. So why do we say, I baptize you in the name of the Father and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Maybe we could rephrase it like this. I baptize you because of the salvation given solely by the Father, solely by the Son, and solely by the Spirit, that all glory would go heavenward, all glory would go to the Father, all glory would go to the Son, all glory would go to the Spirit, And the person being baptized is merely a trophy of the glory of God. So next time you hear, I baptize you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, your heart and your eyes go heavenward because all glory goes to Him. Amen? Let's pray. Our Father, we thank You for a time to just briefly consider the glory of God. That the waters of baptism represent really our humiliation. That we are immersed and we are brought low. We are 
buried with Christ and we are raised again with Him. That our salvation is holy and solely due to the Father's amazing, gracious, loving choice. Holy and solely due to the Son's sacrifice that He did all that He could do. He gave all that He could give. He gave according to the riches of His grace. And that salvation is holy and solely due to the gracious act of the Holy Spirit to open our hearts to our need for Christ and to show us Christ, to show us the glory that we have rebelled against, show us the repentance that we must offer to break down our wills, to break down our rebellion until we are broken in two and we join with King David in crying out, create in me a clean heart, O God. We thank you for those who were baptized tonight. May the gospel go forth. May many more be saved. May these waters be filled over and over again, all to the glory of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. We pray these things in the name of our glorious Trinitarian God. Amen.